The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer Robert Kaplan, whose new book is The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate and the Burden of Power. Robert, now this book, in maybe appropriately tragic mode, is presented to you in the introduction as, as sort of an act of atonement. Can you explain, <laughs> explain what you meant by that? Well, it's not exactly an act of atonement, but it is a framing. The preface does frame the book. And the the high point of the preface is that I admit that I supported the Iraq war and it was wrong. And then I go into what that made me think about. And what it made me think about and read about is the subject of this book which is about how to think tragically, how to think in terms of constructive pessimism, anxious foresight, fancy terms for thinking ahead to everything that could go wrong before you take an action. And I bring into it in the course of the book, the three great Greek tragic writers, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, as well as some of the moderns like Dostoevsky and Conrad, and also, um, of course, Shakespeare, who was, in addition to the three great tragic writers of, 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 of Greek antiquity, Shakespeare is like the fourth of the greatest. And this, and, and this all motors along, so to speak, derivative of my realizing my mistake about the Iraq war and what that entailed. Can I just briefly, for those listeners who aren't completely familiar, I mean, it wasn't just that you supported the Iraq war. You were sort of in a way, you know, to borrow a well-worn phrase, kind of in the room where it happened. Can you tell us how, how that was? Well, basically, I was in Iraq. I made a number of visits there under Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. And it was a form of order so oppressive that I never experienced it before in my life. And I've been a foreign correspondent for decades. I've reported from Africa, from Eastern Europe, from Asia, other places, and I never experienced a form of order so oppressive. Then I went back to Iraq after the invasion and was embedded with U.S. Marines in Al-Anbar province in 2004 and with an army striker brigade in 2005 in Mosul. And there I saw a form of anarchy that was worse than the order I had experienced under Saddam Hussein. So I learned that anarchy is, is actually more extreme and worse than extreme forms of order. Now, let me just say that the issues of tyranny and anarchy are, is a dismal subject that the great philosophers from Plato to Hobbes have dealt with voluminously. However, 
to learn about it through actual experience is life-changing. And was the experience of being, I mean, I, I understand you had some input into the policy that determined the beginning of the Iraq war. Was it when you were in Mosul that you sort of thought, actually, I got this wrong? Was that a sort of sudden moment or a slower process? No, by Mosul already, it wasn't so. Uh, it, well, it, it was. It started in Fallujah in 2004, and it culminated in 2006 when I read about the mosque bombing in Samarra that unleashed all-out sectarian war in Iraq. And, you know, as you, as you say, the takeaway from that, I mean, now some years on that you're writing about it, what was it that caused you to start reflecting on tragedy, on a, on a literary form, in light of all that? Was that something that was always in the back of your mind, this quite abstract way of thinking about tyranny and, and chaos and order? Or was it something that well, you I, snuck I, I up think on? That- yeah, I think that the, the ability to get Iraq right was the ability to think tragically. And thinking tragically is not what it seems to be. It's, tragedy is not about common misfortune. It's not about mistake, you know, normal mistakes in life. or um, that, the, That's the normal order, rule of life. Nor is it about vile crimes against humanity, like the Holocaust or Rwanda, for instance, because things like that, the Greek tragedians had no answer for. They had no experience of it. Or if they did, that's not what tragedy is about. It's not what Shakespearean tragedy is about. Tragedy is really about... It's about the triumph of one good over another good that causes suffering. That's one aspect of tragedy. In other words, toppling Saddam Hussein, whose tyranny uh, uh, was worse than anyone in the world except for North Korea at that time. Toppling Saddam Hussein was a good in and of itself, but it supplanted a greater good, which is the semblance of order. Uh, that existed in Iraq. And without that order, hundreds of thousands of people went on to die. So tragedy must always, I mean, because I'm interested in trying to get a sort of sense from you of a a compact definition of tragedy as a kind of category. It's a literary category, isn't it? Yes, it is. Is it a competition between two goods? Yes, I think it is a literary category because it look who we're dealing with, the Greeks, Shakespeare, Melville, Dostoevsky, Conrad, etc., who all uh, all uh, you know examined in you know a form of tragedy. It's a matter of being able to think tragically in order to avoid tragedy, which again is fancy terms for thinking of everything that I that could go wrong before you support something. I mean, most of us have the, the, you know, the kind of basic understanding of tragedy that it's, it's concerned with hubris, with, you know, the fatal flaw of pride and the conviction that, you know, it's all going to go right for you, being undone by fate. Absolutely. I'm interested in the, I mean, you know, on, on one level, it seems like what you're saying is, don't expect everything to go right because, you know, no plan of attack ever, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, which is a, a lower literary saying. 
But I'm interested in the role of fate, because obviously it's hugely important in all Greek theories of tragedy. But, you know, you say fate exists. How do you understand fate in a, in a you know, if you like, post-Greek world? Yes. Well, first of all, to deal with arrogance, as I write in the book, arrogance is a form of idiocy. That's because the luckiest among us, the wealthiest and best looking among us, can have our lives undone in 24 hours through some event or something. And thus to act in an arrogant fashion is to not be aware of these larger forces at work. And of course, the greatest play in that regard is Oedipus the King, where you have someone who's the ruler of Thebes, all powerful, everything is going right for him. And in a matter of 24 hours, his whole life is undone. But as he finds out things about himself that he didn't know. So the Greeks were very much concerned, as you said, with hubris and arrogance. And then there's the question of fate. You know, fate is what happens in ways that we can't explain. It indicates a higher force at work. But because we cannot know that higher force, and we cannot know when and how it will intervene, we have to go on struggling as if there was no fate. So just to give in to fate is uh, is wrong. You know, just to say that, well, it's, it's fated to happen, therefore I'm not gonna do anything. That's defeatism. It's not that there is no fate. It's that we don't know how and when it will intervene. And thus, we have no choice but to go on struggling and seeking a higher good. But clearly, in a Greek worldview, you know, the fates were, well, they were associated, the fates were separate figures, but they were associated with the doings of the gods and the power of, of a kind of higher order of existence over the sort of sublunary level of the humans in a world in which we don't as statesmen believe in the providential action of god or the capricious action of the kind of rather squabbling greek gods isn't fate sort of not applicable in the same way in any case, we're dealing with a higher uh, we're dealing with a higher element that we don't fully understand. Whether it's capricious gods, as in ancient Greece, or its complexity itself. For instance, we live in a world where great powers interact with each other, with middle level powers, with smaller powers, and we're all interconnected so to speak, through technology, the number of forces at work is multitudinous. And therefore, it's impossible to know how one how everything will affect each other. So that in itself is a form of fate. As I say in the book, like empire is driven, you know, once a, a small democracy or a middle-level democracy expands to become an empire, then it really tempts fate, not just because it's getting too arrogant and hubristic, but because there are so many more forces at work in the world that interact with it. Uh, the different sorts of tragedy you talk about, I mean, the, the four big ones for you are Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, and Shakespeare. But you see a kind of difference, and it's a kind of literary difference, but a, a difference of worldview as well between those those four, certainly between the ancients and Shakespeare. But even within the ancients, you say Euripides is, is a kind of 
beginning of a departure from classical tragedy. Can you expand on that a little, explain how you see those differences? Uh, yes. Uh, of all the, um, you know, at, in addition to Isaiah, Euripides really begins sort of humanitarian writing. In other words, more than the other three, maybe more than Shakespeare, perhaps, or more than Conrad or Melville, he cares about the individual. He cares about families. He wretches at the horror of war and the cruelty of war. Remember, Euripides is writing years into the Peloponnesian War, which he had originally supported, I believe. But then as the war went on for so many years, uh, he turned against it. So there's a moral element, I, I would say a modern moral element in Euripides that we don't find in the others. Uh, he's less archaic, it seems to me. And I should say, I read all these books in translation, often from uh, some of the great British uh, translators of the early and middle part of the 20th century. I'm not an ancient Greek scholar. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm uh, approaching all this as a layman. Yeah. The, it, this question of the idea that the ancient Greeks have some very sort of eternal concerns, which archetypally affect us now are you concerned at all when you're when you're looking at this with the idea that you know as you say there is this gap between Shakespeare and Europeans they have a different sort of set of ideas about the universe is is there any sort of um anxiety that actually they're they're unlike us in so such profound ways that their lessons are going to have to be skewed if you like um, they're unlike us in so many small and profound ways, but it's the similarities that I find fascinating and the applicability of some of what they write that I find fascinating. You know, there are differences, you know, there are differences not only between us and the ancient Greeks, but between us and the 19th and 17th century, for instance. But it's the similarities and lessons we can draw. And I think those two are profound. Do you think that in, for instance, you know, if, if, if someone today is reading, I don't know, Antigone, they find it very, very hard I would think, to sympathize with Creon. I mean, you say the Greeks would see Creon as actually upholding a good. I mean, do you think the, the sort of humanism has made us misread tragedy? Yes, uh, upholding a good, not the good. In other words, the good of order. And Antigone is uh, upholding the good of loyalty to family. And as I write, that play, you know, shows the discrepancy between loyalty to the state, to order, and loyalty to the family, which is ultimately unresolvable. There's something very stark and particularly archaic in Antigone. But I think, you know, the two, you know, the conflict there between the family and the state is something that goes on in modern times. Do you think that the individualism that seems to be inherent in tragedy, I mean, I'll, I'll that's qualified, obviously, by these ideas of the state and the family. But the fact that the kind of emotional punch of tragedy is about these big figures, you know, Oedipus is a big figure, Antigone is a big figure, Hamlet is a big figure. Is that something that, you know, cuts, uh, somehow cuts across the modern understanding of the way events work, that, you know, we live in 
democracies, largely, we see democratic order and large movements of people. Historians tend to think, you know, the great men theory of history has gone out. Does that individualism make tragedy rather a kind of slightly skewed way of looking at, at international relations? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because I still think we're, you know, I think, as I say at the beginning, at the very beginning, it's all about maps and geopolitics and large forces until it's not, until it's all about Shakespeare. And what I mean by that is individuals. Great men in a positive and an extremely negative sense can make history just as much as, as mass democracies and maps and oil and gas and all of that can make history. Look at the times we're living in now. Look at the outside power over international relations that dictators such as Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have or the, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran. So I think, you know, we're dealing with big figures now just as we just as we did in the past. And big figures as individuals have a tendency to make massive mistakes in a way that more consultative forms of government maybe do not. Yeah. When you talk about order and chaos as being really central to this this thesis, I suppose a classic example would be someone like Xi Jinping who would say that the imposition of order is more important than, if you like, human rights, democracy, all the rest of it. Most dictators through history have seen themselves as a bulwark against chaos. How do you think you move from, and you talk about it, you know, you say, you know, you might f find a tyrannical order that must then be dialed down, but it's sort of order first. Yeah, that that's what I experienced in Iraq, you know, that Order comes before freedom because without order, there is no freedom for anybody. Order is something we take for granted because most people in our world, particularly in our media world, have experienced dictators, they've experienced bad order, they've experienced all kinds of things, but they've never actually experienced anarchy as I've experienced. Well, some have, but relatively few have experienced anarchy as I've experienced it in Iraq, in West Africa, and other places. And at least from my experience, I can say that anarchy has to be avoided at all costs or mostly all costs. I mean, obviously, there are forms of tyranny so great you know, that some form of anarchy following that is permissible. But that's not what I'm writing about. I'm writing about the two, what comes first in terms of a priority. And it, that's the sort of, you know, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch kind of argument, isn't it? Um, yes, but also, as again, as I explain, once you have order, then the primary object is to make order less and less tyrannical and more and more acceptable. And the founders of the American Revolution had fierce debates over this. You know, they were upholders of order, but how can we make order not get out of control? I mean, you talk in the book about how, as you say, one of the problems, as you see it, that the American foreign policy establishment has. I mean, you're talking particularly about, about the United States, but you know, many of us in the West, that we haven't that visceral experience of anarchy, that, and therefore we haven't the proper fear of it. Do you think there's a sort of 
there's any way around that, or is it just a kind of Hegelian swinging back and forth? As until we basically mess up and experience what can go wrong, we're going to suffer hubris. I think that's what happened with uh, with the Iraq War, which is, you know, to take my example, I had experienced extreme order under Saddam, and I said, "What can be worse than this?" What really can be worse than this? Well, I found out when I went back in 2004 to El Anbar province and I saw, and then I felt remorse for my support of the Iraq war, which entailed writing a number of articles and also attending one meeting in support of the war, which turned out not to be very important. But the very fact that I supported it, you know, that I supported it and helped you know, and helped out, you know, made me feel very remorseful for the fact that I had gotten this big thing wrong. Did your fellow travellers at the time kind of round on you when you recanted? I don't think so. I mean, and I, you know, and, I, you know, everyone has to come to his own conclusion about their support for the Iraq war or anything else that goes wrong. But so far, I have not experienced it. Uh, you're quite quite down on the book on what you call journalists and intellectuals. Are they, are they part of the problem? I, I, I think in large part, although yeah, I, I think in large part they are part of the problem in, 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 in the sense that um, they, they see the world only in terms of values and they, they don't, and I'm generalizing here, and and they don't really consider what it's like to have, you know, to be in government and have to make decisions in government that satisfy nobody. You know, someone once said, once you're working inside government, you're automatically a realist, no matter what you thought beforehand. And I think there's some truth to that. You speak very warmly on that count of George H.W. Bush as being someone who you know, wouldn't please the journalists and intellectuals, but actually dealt with the burden of power well. What was it he got right? It's the great thing about George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush, that is, is that not what happened during his presidency, but what did not happen during his presidency. That can be a form of greatness, too. He did not break diplomatic relations with China after Tiananmen. He downgraded uh, relations severely, but he did not give in to media pressure to break relations at the time. He did not do a victory lap around Central Eastern Europe during the fall of the Berlin Wall, again, as many in the media were urging him to do, because he was afraid there might be a Soviet military response to the fall of one communist government after another. So that's what did not happen. There was no Soviet military response. And though that mainly ascribed to the character of Gorbachev, another great man, a big man, so to speak, it also is ascribed in lesser extent to Bush. And that's why he reminded me of Eisenhower. He invaded Kuwait to liberate Kuwait from Iraqi forces. But again, something that did not happen, he did not go all the way to Baghdad or inside Iraq. And yet his son did, which it being a family affair, does have a have distinctly ancient Greek feel to it, doesn't it? Do you see Bush Jr. as, as actually a tragic figure? Yes, I do. 
And I have, uh, I have some real sympathy for him because to invade or not to invade is to make a binary choice in a situation that is given, as I write, to mysteries. You don't know fully what is the morale of the country on the ground. You don't know fully all the details of it. You know, with all the information you get from your intelligence services, that's only 20 or 30 percent of the evidence. But you've got to make a 100 percent binary choice based on 30 percent of the evidence, essentially. And that choice you will live with for the rest of your life. And I think it's really interesting that Bush made the, uh, the younger Bush made the wrong choice in invading Iraq, but also Russian dictator Vladimir Putin made what I consider the wrong choice in invading Ukraine. Great miscalculation. And it is the Ukraine war that will influence the trajectory of Russia in a negative way in a much greater degree than the Iraq war influenced the trajectory of the United States. Well, I'm, and, and that's led us neatly on to something I did want to ask you about as a veteran foreign policy hand. Ukraine now, what is the, if you like, tragic way of viewing that? I mean, does tragic realism or the the sort of pessimistic, cautious realism that you attribute to a proper tragic mindset, would would that ask us to encourage Vladimir Zelensky, for instance, to look to give Putin some of what he wants? Uh, I think think, um, a, a tragic mindset is replicated to a significant degree by President Biden's actual foreign policy. On the one hand, he's supplying weapons to Ukraine at the level of tens of billions of dollars. This is the greatest demonstration of U.S. power since the first Gulf War in 1991, and it's happening without any U.S. troops. And it is bodily weakening a great power rival, which is Russia. And yet, at the same time, Biden is being cautious, I believe. He's not giving the Ukrainians everything he, they want. He's trying to avoid a wider conflict between NATO and Russia. He's trying to avoid Russia using tactical nuclear weapons, even though experts say there's a very, very small chance of that happening in any case. I think Biden, in his own way, is applying a tragic mindset. He's supporting Ukraine, but in a more cautious way than meets the eye. And in that respect, he's not satisfying everybody. But I think the policy so far has been pretty good. Yeah. Tragedy, as you rightly argue in the book, is something that engages the viewer's sympathies. You know, we obviously Aristotle's idea of catharsis has this, that you you're you know, you feel and experience a sort of mimetic proxy of real terror and real horror and fear and violence for the catharsis. Do you think, you know, if, as you say, Putin invading Ukraine is a tragic development, does Putin as a figure engage our sympathies? Uh, no, he doesn't, because I don't think his invasion of Ukraine is is a tragic element. Edith Hamilton defined, you know, the great American um, interpreter of the ancient Greeks, the late great American interpreter, Edith Hamilton, wrote that tragedy is not about vile acts. 
It's not about vile crimes against humanity. That, you know, with that tragedy, as the Greeks defined it, would have nothing to do with. So I, I think it was just a crime, pure and simple, or a mistake, pure and simple. But I don't think Putin nor Saddam Hussein, nor Nikolai Ceausescu, who I had a lot of experience with covering Romania during the Cold War, had the ability to know themselves, to understand themselves, to comprehend themselves, and therefore they are not tragic figures. So self-comprehension is, is the Is a the big payoff. part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert Kaplan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much.